We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, but even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's um, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Ah, great Texan himself, Lyndon Baines Johnson, with his big cowboy hat. Yeehaw! America loves cowboys. John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, the essential American spirit of rugged individualism is personified in the cowboys, who, all on their own, of course, without any thought of government help, tamed the West. The idea of socialism, of course, is the polar opposite of America's cowboy history. Not so fast, says our guest today, Ryan Cooper, according to his new article titled The Secret History of Cowboy Socialism. What? Despite the fanciful myths of high-in-the-saddle, tough, independent real men like John Wayne, the truth is, quote, the federal government is simply an inextricable part of how the West functions and has been since the beginning, end of quote. Of course, John Wayne was not real. He was an actor. The ascent of Ronald Reagan and his continuing popularity had a lot to do with his image, again, as a tall-in-the-saddle cowboy. It's a great fantasy that virtually all little American boys grew up believing. Well, at least the white boys. With our six guns and cowboy hats, we looked to be strong, independent men when we grew up, men who could single-handedly take on the world. As with many exaggerated stories, it seems the longer they stick around, the more they become an integral part of our collective consciousness. We just accept the myths after time as being reality. Here we are well into the 21st century, and the myth of the rugged individualist cowboy still very much shapes our political campaigns and foreign policy. But when America does go it alone in our foreign affairs, it always comes back to bite us hard. And when our economy is driven by the imposition of this myth on reality, many good, hardworking people who play by the rules get hurt and badly because it just doesn't work the way the cowboy image is painted. Our guest today, I'm very pleased to have with us, Ryan Cooper, is a national correspondent at theweek.com. Good stuff. His work has appeared in Washington Monthly, The New Republic, and The Washington Post. Thank you so much for being with us, Ryan Cooper. Thanks for having me. Well, Cooper writes that, in fact, quote, from the very start to the present day, big government has been the very bedrock of the settlement of the American frontier. 
end quote. Cooper reveals socialism was, in fact, integral to the reality of American cowboys. Without socialism, virtually none would have survived, never mind thrived as so many did. Again, thanks for being with us, Ryan Cooper. How did you come to write this article? (laughs) Well, um, probably the most important part was growing up in the West myself. Uh, I was born in, in Utah and lived in a tiny rural Utah town, uh, less than 200 people, um, until I was about 10 years old. Then I moved to Colorado, owned a slightly bigger town, but still not that big. And, you know, it's sort of, uh, saturated with that sort of, that kind of mythology around there. Um, but, you know, my folks were never really part of the dominant political culture and they, you know, my my dad was the first one to intru- introduce me to the the book that I cite in there about uh, Western water politics, uh, uh-huh. like Desert, uh, which is a you know classic, though somewhat uh, outdated in terms of the current situation. Um, and so, you know, it's just the the that sort of firsthand experience with how people tend to view themselves in the West and how it just pulls apart from how the history actually happened. I think it's an experience that most, you know, your average kind of East coast, uh, journalist, you know, is just, they're just not really familiar with that. The, the, you know, the laws and the institutions that were so key to that, uh, development. Fascinating. It's amazing how people can believe things just by dint of time and not being challenged. And you write that few figures of American myth are more iconic than that of the American cowboy. He's perhaps the signature encapsulation of the American spirit of self-reliant individualism. This does not seem to be the case anywhere else in North America or the world. A big part of American identity itself, of course, is the belief in the in American exceptionalism. How much of a part of the belief in American exceptionalism is this cowboy myth? Well, some of it, you know, I, I might quibble with, with a, a little bit of what of what you oh, please uh, do how you de- described that previously. You know, one one of the things, one of the many ironies of the cowboy thing uh, it, is how it actually is rather influenced by a lot of international perspective, particularly Spanish and Mexican culture. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 figure of the vaquero, which is different from the cowboy in a lot of ways. You know, it doesn't have the same sort of like libertarian undertones, I don't think, but it's certainly, you know, been a heavy, heavy influence on the, the, you know, the, the, uh, attire and lifestyle and sort of, you know, just overall look and feel of the cowboy, um, is, 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 you know, despite the pretense of it being an all American thing, like so many other American things, it's just like been glommed together from, you know, lots of other things and and just kind of pasted with a big stamp Mm. made in the USA. Um, But, you know, as as far as um, American exceptionalism, it's definitely, you know, one of the big, one of the big strains, you know, there are certainly others to it, but I mean, you know, George W. Bush, that was his whole shtick, you know, and and Reagan too, you know, the most famous picture of Reagan in the cowboy hat and Bush out there cutting trees on his, you know, fake ranch in Crawford, Texas. Um, And uh, those, you know, 
the 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 variant of exceptionalism that just is sort of like aggressive and right. and and uh, a, a bit mindless, as opposed to, for example, like the Statue of Liberty is saying, like oh, America is a good place to live where where people can you know uh, make a good living for themselves, right? Make the most themselves. Um, it's not so it's not so much about that related to it, but. Uh-huh. Um, it's it's certainly one of the one one of the streams. Well, hopefully we can keep that uh, spirit alive of the the Statue of Liberty. That this is a place. America is a place where people can make the most of themselves and not be burdened by oppressive governments. And you know, freedom. You can have. I, I don't think there's any uh, uh, conflict between freedom and having some government programs to help you out. It, it doesn't seem, I don't think there's any conflict at all. You know, it's, it's not, uh, uh, the, there's, you know, an image of socialism, which is not exactly accurate either, but people have come to believe conflating it with communism. The reality is communists hunted down and killed socialists. And, you know, there have been a lot of social programs through the years. And certainly this is coming up nowadays with the increasing strength of one Bernie Sanders. And there is one uh, kind of a new cowboy image on the scene by the name of Ammon Bundy. He is the leader of that rather odd militia group occupying a federal wildlife refuge way out in Oregon, demanding an end to federal interference with the West. An end to federal interference with the West. You write that Bundy's ideas are nonsense. But they're no more wrong than the entire creation myth of the American West. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, he, you know, he had just has the typical attitude of of a kind of Western conservative um, that you know the problem with Western issues is is inappropriate federal domination. He just has that turned up to 11, you know, that the, instead of that, you know, government needs to get out of the way. It's like the, 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 enemy. the fact that that government owns land in the West is unconstitutional. And that's like, that's a ridiculous legal opinion, but you know, it's just, it's just kind of like a really extreme version of, of, a of a, the classic kind of Western, you know, libertarianism and so and so forth and I think the most striking instance of that is uh, 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 how Bundy and his followers focus on government ownership of what is in many cases just absolutely unproductive land you know they, they, the government owns um, mm-hmm. uh, like 80 plus 88 maybe percent of Nevada and it's just absolutely wasteland, you know, out there that they, in many cases, literally could not give away for free yeah, right. um, because it's just you couldn't make it pay for anything. But what Bundy does does not talk about, as far as I can tell, ever mentioned is how the government owns most of the big electricity generators in uh, Western States, you know, things like Grand Coulee Dam, the biggest electricity plant in the entire country to this point. I mean, literally government owning the means of production and operating them themselves. And and like that, that is, 
you know, it's Soviet policy. It's not not like Bernie Sanders socialism. This is like Lenin socialism. (laughs) And it doesn't, it goes totally unmentioned because that's what keeps the lights on. You know, it's, it's, it's the thing that keeps, you know, the West trundling along. And like, there are some real issues with how the BLM works and it's not, you know, the the Bureau of Land Management that is, that is the, 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 bureaucracy that Bundy complains about, you know, it's definitely not a perfect institution, but right. you know, the fact that they miss these like gigantic examples is pretty indicative of, of, you know, the limits of their, their kind of thinking, you know, that they couldn't, they, they could, they wouldn't even be able to live there to make the protest if it weren't for the government having built up all of these, you know, kind of, problematic but functional institutions for for them to exist in the first place. I'm sure. And if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is KeepingDemocracyAlive.com. Our guest today is Ryan Cooper, talking about an article he's written, The Secret History of Cowboy Socialism. He is a national correspondent at The Week, and his uh, works have appeared in Washington Monthly, The New Republic, and The Washington Post. You, You write that the quote, only extensive federal government projects could possibly facilitate the settlement and development of the region. But it has been too wedded to the cowboy mythology to admit it. Please explain how that has worked in our tales of glorious, rugged individualism of the West. Yeah, so when... um, You know, when Western settlement first got going, you know, kind of after the... Louisiana Purchase was first being, you know, cleared out of of natives and so forth. People thought they could just kind of import the same institutions that they had built up along the uh, original colonies mm-hmm. um, over the past, you know, several hundred years. Which was, you know, these are government programs too, but it's really basic stuff. Just like you know, you have your property law, you have your, you know, crime and your courts and your police and that sort of stuff. And uh, you don't really need anything aside from that. But once, basically, once settlement moved west of the 100th meridian, they discovered that, um, you know, it turns out that that is some really harsh country. And the, and yeah. the, the, the main difference is that, you know, east of that, you can generally make uh, agriculture work, which, you know, up to, you know, the mid-20th century, that was, you know, a base basic job for like, you know, 30, 40% of the working population or, or more than that. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and West of the hundreds meridian, it, it doesn't work. You know, you, you can do ranching with just eating, you know, um, and you can do irrigation, um, fueled, uh, agriculture, but you can't just rely on rainwater. There's just not enough rain right. in most places. You know, there, there are exceptions everywhere. Yeah. And, um, you know, so, so people built up, they had, you know, the, the frontier man, you know, and the, and the individualist myth was already getting going. You know, I mean, this is like Thomas Jefferson, you know, his yeoman farmers, thought that should be the bedrock of democracy. And they just, you know, kind of expanded that and, um, you know, adapted it to the, to the Western situation with, with the form of the cowboy, but, you know, especially as the, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, Gilded Age happened, people kept trying to develop, 
you know, from about the 1870s up to 1900, they kept trying to develop these water projects. Um, and the thing the, the they, they universally failed, you know, mm-hmm. these are private interests that got together. Remember, remember these are, these are times when people were extremely rich, you know, the, the individuals that is, right. And they would pool their capital and they would try to do these things. And the States would try to do them too, individual States in California and so forth. And they try to do them and it just, kept falling apart. You know, a few of them worked, but those are the really easy ones. And um, it turned out that the only thing that was big enough to swing the capital requirements was the federal government. And so in 1902, they passed the Reclamation Act, and the federal government got into the business of financing these these projects. And eventually, you know, so the first couple of decades were, were pretty marginal, and they really tripped on their shoelaces a bunch of bioattorneys. They were building some, the, the, probably the biggest, most ambitious federal projects, um, in, you know, American history and, uh, at, you know, considered in their historical context. And that became the bedrock of, you know, the, the civilization of the West and what was built up in its economic development. Yeah. Um, but they never reconciled that with the previous political mythology that that it was, you know, the the rugged individualists. Right. right. You, know, you you can't build, uh, you know, a, a dam that's got more material in it than, you know, the Great Pyramid at Giza, <laughs> with a couple of lassos and a, <laughs> you know, farming hand. Because the that's a that's a government program right there. But yeah, you know, so so they just. They just uh, grafted them together. They just said, okay. And, and, and literally, I mean, the founder of the modern conservative movement, Barry Goldwater, he was the water project man uh-huh. in Congress. He loved that stuff. And because, you know, he, he recognized at least that, that you couldn't do it any other way. There was just simply no other option. And so they just kind of made a little carve out in the kind of political identity for you know, massive socialism, and then just kind of ignored it for the rest of the time. Well, yeah, it, it's so funny. Here yeah. we are today. Here we are today. And, you know, I have to say, I never thought of Barry Goldwater as much of a socialist before. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, so it is. I mean, that's that's apparently the reality. And I know that uh, oh, back when I was in college, uh, we talked about the belief that people could get west of history. They wanted to leave the culture behind them and, and leave history and get west of history and just do it on their own. And, well, when what is this period where the, the, the image of the cowboy, as you mentioned, the Louisiana Purchase, 1803, was it largely the middle of the 19th century that this image of the Wild West being settled by cowboys was? Yeah, I think that's about right. You know, by the by the uh, turn of the century, it, even the you know, it was a pretty brief time. I think where the the actual working cowboys, who were in many cases just employees of big ranching right. organizations, right, got there were were really a kind of you know a, a big you know large numbers of people were doing that as a job, right. Um, and their job was 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 to move the herds from one place to the other. They were employed by the by the big landowner, and and that that was a cowboy, right? Yeah, right. You know, and with some exceptions, you know, there are some people who had their you know managed to scratch out a a living with um, 
get a bit of land or they or they would you know find a wild herd and uh-huh. you know, the the rule back in the day was if you found a cattle without a, a cow without a brand on it you know you could just, you could claim it as your own so you know you could potentially you know there are various routes that individuals might be able to build up some kind of an independent operation but you know especially towards the end of the late middle and the end of the uh, 19th century you know, capital just became really concentrated. And so in in every part of the economy, things were dominated by a few huge firms. Sounds familiar. That was definitely true. (laughs) Yeah, we had the the Gilded Age back in the late 19th century. It's probably at least as unbalanced and have, you know, the percentage of people with all the big money, I'm guessing is probably smaller now and more concentrated now than it ever was then. Uh, what about uh, homesteading? How, you know, peop- many of us grew up with the image of cowboys and, and groups of settlers just going out west. And if they survived the often extremely difficult journey, there was plenty of land just, just for the taking. W- was that accurate? And what is this homesteading? I, I wonder how substantial that was, really. It, it was definitely important. Um, it and it definitely did happen, you know, many times, according to the, like, Laura Ingalls Wilder script, you know, where an individual family would go out there, they'd get their quarter section, 160 acres, and they would work that as a family or maybe a couple of families. Mm-hmm. Um, but as as with um, so, so much else, I mean, including water policy after the New Deal, at least, um, it, it was just not a very realistic way of trying to settle this land. And the basic problem is, is again, so often in the West goes back to water. Right. Because the congressmen back then and the the territorial legislatures and so forth, they were trying to attract lots of settlers and populations. And they didn't want to hear that the, that their states were these like harsh deserts, you know, places that would be real tough to, uh, make a living at. And so they insisted on importing the Eastern model. Well, you know, East of the hundredth meridian, it's, you know, 160 acres is a reasonable amount. You know, it's like, that's a, that's a good sized farm. If you're going to be growing like corn or something like that. But, but if you're talking, you know, Colorado or something, 160 acres is, is, uh, it's even actually a little, probably too much for an individual family to farm by themselves. You know, if you don't, if you don't have any mechanized equipment, but mm-hmm. if you don't, if you're going to try and ranch and not grow crops, it's not nearly enough. You can't, you can only, you can only run like five cattle on a piece of ground that big. Wow. Hmm. Um, and so you, you know, the, these, these programs went through several iterations, but they never really reconciled the, a fundamental like a contradiction between you know the realities of trying to settle settle out this different you know biome and the way that people you know insisted that it should work that it should be you know manna from heaven and mm. you know see the signing scene and it'd be really easy and we've got God's favor and uh, right. we don't need to think hard about any of this stuff. <laughs> Sounds like a consciousness that still exists. And I'm reminded of, uh, I think it was Eric the Red of the Vikings who decided to call that humongous island continent 
Greenland. He wanted to call it Greenland because green sounds good to get settlers. (laughs) But it was a lie. Exactly right. Yeah. Completely. 98% glaciers. Yeah. Amazing. Well, you know, getting people out there. And back again when I was in college, I read something called The Turner Thesis, written by historian Frederick Jackson Turner in 1893, which basically said that the winning of the West was an advanced civilization fanning out successfully in an open, empty frontier. As uh, my wonderful late professor asked the students after full discussion of the book, all right, kids, what's the problem with this thesis of the settling of the West? And there was silence. Then he let it out with some gusto. The Indians! It was not at all empty. What about the Indians? As you write, quote, before the West could be won, it first had to be stolen. Was it not the rugged white men who did that on their own? I wonder if you could explain a little bit. No, definitely not. It, it, was, the, um, it was the army. The army? Another big government program. Yeah, that, that was... <laughs> Uh, you know, by the time that, that, um, America had, uh, gotten control after, of most of the, you know, current territory, that is to say after the Mexican American war, which we deliberately started so we could steal as yes. much of Mexico as possible. Yeah. Um, you know, there were still tons and tons of natives living there and the basic, you know, the basic hydraulic forces of, of politics back then was that, you know, white people wanted in and they wanted the Indians out. And so there were just this, you know, the Indian wars, you know, sort of brush fire series, series of conflicts and, um, so forth, moving, uh, moving ethnic, a program of ethnic cleansing. That's what it was. And settler colonialism, just taking the land and shoving the Indians off of it. Some of, some of, some of it was just, incomprehensibly brutal. Um, and you know, some of the, some of the fighting was pretty tough too, because the Indians, you know, it's like, this is, this is war. We're not going to give up without a fight. You know, the Comanches, for example, were notoriously uh, unforgiving in terms of their, what they would do to Uh white settlers. Uh You can't really exactly blame them for that, but you know, they, they fought amongst themselves too. It wasn't like they were some, United uh, Front, right, right. Like that. But but anyway, at the end of that, you know, you had the Indians shunted off to a few reservations so you could get the the white settlers packed in there. It was a kind of a continuous process, you know, yeah. just moving moving forward, fight a war, sign a treaty, break the treaty, fight another war, take more land, sign a treaty. Eventually, you reached California. Yeah, yeah, and of course. Oklahoma was called Indian Territory until as recently as 1912. That was like the last place for the frightful owners of the area. Uh, And, you know, as a kid, you know, with the cowboy myth, uh, we remember, you know, seeing these fights between, you know, the good white settlers and the Indians. And luckily, the cavalry would come on and save them. There you go. Another big government program. Uh, if you just tuned in, again, Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Ryan Cooper, author of a fascinating article uh, in uh, theweek.com the called The Secret History of Cowboy Socialism. And you often refer to the 100th uh, Meridian. What is that exactly? Where is that? 
Oh, that's just a line of, um, is it longitude or latitude? Longitude. I always get it mixed up. But but the one of the you know geographical uh, north to south right. boundaries, and I'm I'm not sure exactly where it goes through what states, but it's kind of about Kansas, so right, kind of through the middle of Kansas uh-huh. area, and it, you know it was I think it was John Wesley Powell, the first head of the uh, United States Geological Survey, who identified that, if I'm not mistaken as the kind of the the boundary point for the west and the east uh-huh. and that's you know the 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 key difference being the the you know areas that got enough rainfall right. for traditional agriculture and those that didn't yeah yeah and i it, pre- it pretty much splits the country in half more uh-huh. or less and i i remember being out in uh, nevada and utah a while ago and seeing the incredibly desolate areas just huge huge areas and you know putting uh, native americans on this area which is just impossible it seemed to me but that's where they got stuck and and much of what we now call the united states was settled by white europeans east of mississippi before the war against secession also known as the civil war which it was not, but that's another story. After that uh, great bloodletting, the so-called Civil War, the Western migration really took off in earnest. You describe it. Extensive white settlement still required the first major domestic government program in the West. What was that major uh, domestic government program called? I I think you called it the Indian Wars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, uh, I referenced that before, but yeah, ba- yeah. Basically, after the um, after the end of the Civil War, the, the you know the, the po- domestic politics were sorted, and so people could. And there's still, you know, right about when is the uh, Irish Potato Famine? Is that the 1840s? Yeah, the 1840s. Anyway, massive, massive immigration during this time, and so there's clamoring for free land. And mm-hmm. As soon as the Civil War is sorted out, people start moving west, and then somewhat after that, that's when the, I think the real, um, the really heavy fighting with the Indians gets gets going. And in fact, that actually had some knock-on effects as. Uh, you know the the army, which was also imposing reconstruction in the south, um, and and guaranteeing the you know black people could vote, black men that is mm-hmm. uh, in the south. They they were increasingly being pulled westward to fight the Indians instead, instead of the KKK and uh, the red shirts and so forth. So uh, mm-hmm. kind of an interesting little you know side effect there, but yeah, basically you know the the. Settlement moved west, and the army had to go with them to, you know, in, to facilitate that. It's kind of a kind of a chicken or the egg situation, but but yeah, that's your, you know, it doesn't get more big government than the military, and uh, even uh, compared to water, that's true. The military and water, kind of big things. And and I remember reading, you know, we've all heard that a lot of the fight before the Civil War was about uh, allowing. Uh, black people to settle in the West, bringing slavery into the West. Should it bring slavery? Should it not bring slavery? And from what I read, part of the argument against bringing slavery into the new territories was the white people didn't want any black people at all. 
it wasn't so much that they were against slavery. They didn't want any black people there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, the war against secession had a lot of different effects. I mean, for one thing, uh, after the war, an awful lot of individuals had guns that they didn't have before. And, and one of the effects of the, the war against secession was what Lincoln wanted, which was to shift power away from the semi-autonomous states and instead concentrate power in the federal government. And, you know, the the expansion of the railroad was was huge in terms of settling of the West and which towns would get money and and great opportunities for amazing corruption. In what ways did the role of the federal government change when it came to what we today might recognize as socialism as it related to the stoking of white settlement? Um, well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the railroad is definitely a big, big example. You know, I think, um, the, the, basically the story I would tell is that, you know, Lincoln, the civil war stokes in a similar way, kind of to how the, uh, the settling a desert stoked a centralized government War is also stoked centralized government. You can't fight a you know a yeah. war without you know big government intervention, saying like, right. okay, everyone of military age is coming over here. We're going to kill you, mm-hmm. and you're going to fight these people. Um, you know that that's pretty much the the as I was saying, as big government as it gets. Yeah. Um, but after the war, you know the 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 system east of the. East of the Hundred Meridian, I think it wasn't quite as obvious, but you know, as as the country continued to develop economically, it be, it became more and more clear that you um, you needed a certain level of centralization uh, right. in order to to make the the thing work. You know, in order to to have the United States like continue to function as a society. Right. You know, I mean, that's kind of like this from the very start of the of the uh, uh, independent country, you know, the Articles of the Confederation was well, the problem. Yes. It's not centralized enough. You know, you right. couldn't. You couldn't. It's not a workable system. But as you know, as uh, farming becomes less and less important, and this happens all throughout the 19th and 20th century. You know, industry becomes a bigger part of of the economy. You need m- more, stronger, and more effective. Um, you know, government administration to do things like stop the boilers from exploding on the Hmm. uh, uh, steam vessels going up and down the Mississippi. That was like one of Hmm. the very first things that, uh, you know, like what we would call a regulatory bureaucracy. Um, You know, people on, on, uh, you know, the paddle wheel steamers up in, uh, I believe, the 1840s, you know, it's like every couple of days one would explode and right. so it's like yeah we got to do something about this and you know they did and it wasn't perfect but it definitely you know it drastically cut down on uh, those sorts of accidents and you know a- after the war they built this big machine and there was kind of a you know what are we going to do with it next and sort of sort of like how I believe it was Margaret Thatcher talking to. No, maybe it was Madeline, Madeline Albright. <laughs> We've got this big army. What you know? What are we going to do if we're not going to? Might as well use it for something. Something like that. Right. Um, 
you know, the, I think that, you know, the pressure was to, to send, send it somewhere, to have it do something. And I think settling to helping settle the West was a, certainly a part of that. Oh, yeah. It was great, great business, uh, for sure. And uh, somebody I've admired for a long time, uh, Gore Vidal, many years ago, said America has long had socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor. So from that, I wonder if you could talk about the land grants. You talked about that a little bit, the allocation of land to settlers and to the uh, incredibly powerful railroads. What about those those land grants and, and how it might reflect on, you know, socialism at work? Oh, yeah, that, those were just, I mean, this this was around the Reconstruction era and a lot of this was happening and, and the, you know, governments were just like notoriously corrupt. You know, this is a Tammany Hall era and so forth. And um, yeah, I mean, it would, they, they would pay for these railroads basically by giving the, I, I believe it was like a quarter section checkerboarding on either side of the rail. I mean, it was just a gigantic giveaway of land. Right. You know, we're, we're talking like, hundreds of thousands of acres to build these things. And it was often, you know, way underpriced, you know, like they could have gotten a much better deal if they wanted to. And, um, you know, for as, as, as far as the class angle, you know, of course all these railroad owners are rich, but, um, yeah. going back to the Homestead Act previously, you know, it's, it's just a basically unworkable system for the vast majority of actual, yeoman farmers, mm-hmm. but a lot of uh, rich people built up huge land empires, basically by fraud. You know, they, they would, <laughs> there would be, you know, an irrigation requirement, so they'd get some sailor off the boat um, in San Francisco and take him out to the countryside and dump a bucket of water on the ground, and then the guy would swear to having seen the place irrigated, and he'd get back on the ship, and, you know, you because... You know, you couldn't you couldn't build a, a ranching empire unless you had you know two three thousand acres, and the only way to assemble that was, was through fraud. And it's not like the you know the 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 cattle barons of the time were particularly scrupulous in the first place, so they would just you know get as much as they possibly could. Yeah. And so you know, to this day, uh, some some you know giant private holdings and private farmlands were. Their, uh, you know, their their root origin was people just defrauding the government of all this land, mm. which they were, you know, in fairness, just trying to give away. But it was just extremely clumsy and unfair the way that they were doing it. And from what I understand, uh, I read a book a number of years ago called Railroaded. You know how the railroads were laid out took. You know there was a lot. If your town was on a railroad line, obviously you'd make a heck of a lot more money. Be much better for the economy. And mm, a lot of uh, corruption and money changing hands there to lay out where the railroads went. This is, uh, you know. This is how the actual West uh, was settled. The idea, as you're talking about, you know, homesteading, very, very difficult. A wonderful myth to, to imagine it could be done, but it just extremely hard to do. And you write that uh, along these lines, quote, Western politicians simply grafted massive federal subsidies on to their beloved cowboy individualism, end of quote. That sounds like a lot of fun. Tell us about that. How how well did that turn out? Yeah, so um, I think, uh, 
you know, I'm talking about water politics, I believe, in that sure. particular section. But it's all—I think it fits in all sorts of situations. You know, that as you know, Barry Goldwater, being the water socialist, right. was also committed to the idea that government is fundamentally broken, and you can't—you know—the the the thing to do is just shrink government. And, oh yeah. Until you can drown it in the bathtub, or, oh, right. as Gorman Norquist would say. And so there is no, you know, the, there is no pressure from these people who wanted the socialist projects for the for the the government to be actually good at what it was doing. And you know, under certain circumstances, the the the, the interesting contrast is, I think, between the New Deal, World War II era. Mm-hmm. when that that was i think really the best period of of western like the the most um um effective the the, the federal government ever was in yeah. terms of like yeah. selecting stuff uh uh selecting good projects uh that made sense and were economically you know reasonable and building them very quickly and efficiently in fact us you know if you go back and read some of um you know, Cadillac Desert and the other books about this, that the feats of engineering that the government managed to do, especially during World War II, yes. was absolutely incomprehensible. You know, you had, it's like, um, I think when they were, when they were putting in Grand Coulee Dam, mm-hmm. uh, one of the, uh, they had a spot for some generators, but the generators weren't finished yet. And, uh, you know, this is when the, there's like fighting the, they're just trying to crank out airplanes as fast as they possibly can. Sure. And so they couldn't wait a couple of weeks to have the the generators finished. So they took the generators from Shasta Dam down in California, hauled them all the way up to the Oregon-Washington border, and jammed them into this dam. It was not designed for them, and um, spun the wrong direction, the turbines <laughs> did. So they just dug a hole, a, a trench going the other way around so that, that the water could go in the right place and you know, cranked the things up to like 125% of their rated capacity and ran them for like three years straight. And they, you know, and never broke, never, never shut down. It was, you know, it's just like this, to see something like here in DC, when we're trying to build a subway rail out to the airport and it's going to take over 10 years to finish the thing. It's just, it's like almost unbelievable. But anyway, you know, once that pressure was gone, when you had the New Deal Democrats were sort of on the downcline and the war wasn't providing all this pressure to, to do things in an efficient way, you just had, you know, these Western conservatives demanding lots of stuff. And because there's nobody saying like, hey, this should make sense, it ended up just being a giant graft, you know, and mm-hmm. building all these projects that were completely ridiculous. You know, oftentimes I think, as I say in the piece, you know, they'd be paying some guy in like the high desert of Colorado, giving him enormously subsidized water. You know, he's paying pennies on the dollar for what it costs to provide. And he's growing some crops that they're paying another guy in Kansas not to grow because there's a tremendous surplus on the market. I mean, it's, it was, it's just completely insane. And after a while, it just kind of collapsed. But yeah, you know, if, you, if you're going to have socialist policy, you got to have somebody to actually make sure the bureaucracy is functioning properly. <laughs> Otherwise, you just get, you know, boondoggles. Well, that, that is certainly a problem uh, in history with, with socialism. And, you know, I mean, the Soviet model is, 
is, is, is not the only problem. Yes, to be sure. Yeah, I mean, quite, quite uh, you know, much more doctrinaire Marxist. But I remember hearing about factories in the old Soviet Union that made things, and the government would say, "You got to make more. You got to make more. You got to make more." Nobody wanted this stuff. You know, it was just right. bad products, and that is a, an, I think, probably inherent problem of socialism. Thus, the idea of democratic socialism. Aha! <laughs> you know, so that there can be real participation by people know what the heck is going on here. Very, very interesting stuff. You know, there are certainly problems with 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 socialism, and you know, as you've mentioned a couple of times, that water was a huge factor, and. Some settlers, very few apparently, had their own little water wells. But of course, most of the Western land are, you know, still desert. And it's hard to imagine the settling of the West without some big solutions to get water to where people wanted to settle. I'm reminded of the great film Chinatown, uh, which was which was all about the political power of decisions regarding distribution of incredibly valuable water. You say that the delivery of water was the starkest example of Western socialism. Do tell. Um, yeah, well, uh, you know, as I said before, you know, these are still an example of, of, of literally kind of Leninist Socialism, not oh, yeah. not this milk toast Bernie Sanders stuff. <laughs> the government owning the means of production, um, big generators producing you know megawatts upon megawatt of electricity, and uh, uh, you know selling that electricity to consumers. Um, just running these really important th- these these keystone economic institutions for their you know surrounding areas that are really big and really complicated. And they, you know, they they more or less function for the most part. Yeah, and um, and you know the 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 Chinatown is kind of an interesting example because that's where you have a a corruption yes. that you know somebody's going to be making it. They're they're going to be putting this water project in, and it's all quiet, right? And then they're you know the bunch of people who own the land uh, that where the water is going are going to become filthy rich. And that's, I think, an example of where, you know, there, there's kind of a divergence in this history here because sometimes, you know, you had like corrupt systems that sort of worked in a sense, you know, like they actually would pay for someone, you know, it was not fair, but it was like, you know, at least comprehensible. Mm. Um, but, but particularly towards the end, you know, in like the 60s and 70s, the Bureau of Reclamation and the, and the Army Corps of Engineers were building some stuff that was just completely insane, you know, stuff that didn't make any sense at all. Mm. And, um, you know, that, and that was eventually, you know, what, what led to their kind of downfall as these big builder agencies as they, they just yeah. you know, weren't churning out uh, product, projects that made any sense, you know, well, no. for, for people to become rich. You know, it was just like, Stick a thing and them, and and uh, and nobody will profit. Yeah, true. I mean, now we have these public works projects, huge public works projects called uh, weapons manufacturers that make all these oh, huge things, incredibly expensive. They don't do anything. They just they gather dust. Some military contractors make a heck of a lot of money. But there's kind of a bizarre twist on the concept of socialism. It doesn't do any good particularly. I mean, a lot of these things are, you know, cost billions and billions of dollars. 
and therefore fighting uh, an obsolete uh, enemy. It just it it's uh, you know you got to have some democracy in these socialist things. Uh, that is for sure. And you mentioned the the Reclamation Act. My sense is, I mean, that came in in 1902, I believe. Uh, and I wonder about its effect. You know, how good it was, how bad it may it may have been, and and you know what what some of its effects uh, may be on perhaps even uh, the ecology of the West. Uh, the, 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 I'm definitely not an, an expert on the, on the detailed effects of that act in particular, but my general sense is that it, it, was, it was flawed in kind of the same way that every, everything else about American water policy was flawed, but it was basically pointed in the right direction. Because it was, mm-hmm. it was as I mentioned previously, you know, coming on the heels of all of these um, failed individual and state level water projects, and so you know, kind of all of a sudden, there was this sharp left turn in Western water politics, and they, you know, decided they were going to put together a federal agency, and they were going to, you know, they were going to do water projects and. They were going to, uh, you know, see see if, you know, these new, you know, expanding federal bureaucracy, which was really just becoming a thing mm-hmm. then, you know, it, we didn't have the administrative state like we do now, um, could do a better mm-hmm. job than than those folks, you know, the 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 individual capitalists and the state governments, yeah. and the initial answer was not really. They they tried a bunch of stuff and it was you know it was kind of it was a bunch of East Coast folks mm-hmm. who didn't really have that much expertise in the region <laughs> and they were trying to do stuff that was you know they didn't really know what they were doing when they first started out so for the first twenty years or so it, it was a mixed bag at best but um, and and what is you know, the... I... go ahead sorry. I was going to ask, what is the uh, uh, lasting impact of it? The the Reclamation Act is it still in gear? I believe it's still law. I know it was it was heavily amended, you know, and, and particularly, uh, you know, by by the '30s, you know, it was just supercharged, and you had, you know, all those the the really big structures, you know, your your Shasta. Uh, Bonneville Dam, mm-hmm. Grand Coulee, Hoover Dam. Mm-hmm. Those are all um, well. They're still functioning. You know, so way outside the original scope. You know, th- this is this is these are going to be things for like, you know, a few thousand people or a small city or something. Not, not going to be like we're going to provide half the electricity for the entire state with this one, you know, installation. Um, but I think you know the the. The lasting effect of the Reclamation Act has been to, uh, uh, I think, to put in a, bu- a, a goodly number of reasonable projects, uh, some of them very big, a, a much larger number, most of them not nearly as big, of, of questionable or, or just completely worthless projects, and put into production a lot of basically unprofitable mm-hmm. unprofitable agricultural land um, throughout the West. So it, it, know, it's, I was just going to ask, it seems like, you know, the people who are 
wary of socialism, maybe logically so, correctly so, because of you know sometimes the decisions that made are made are not the best decisions. As, as you mentioned, guys from the East coming out West and, and slapping down their way of doing things where it doesn't fit. Sounds like our foreign policy in a lot of ways. But, uh, you know, I, I wonder if there are ways to, uh, you know, keep track of and monitor and control the uh, the projects to make sure that they actually do public good. I mean, certainly the Hoover Dam and other projects did a heck of a lot of public good as they were profitable at the same time. I, I can't help but think that the idea of, you know, democratic socialism, like there is in Scandinavia, which seems to be working pretty darn well, uh, could be a, a corrective to the uh, some of the excesses of, uh, you know, real hardcore uh, socialism, Marxist socialism. And I don't know if you want to comment on that at all. Yeah, um, no, I, I think that's that's generally correct. Um, you know, I, the the reason the New Deal projects for the Bureau of Reclamation were such a success is because they had immense pressure from from the government to to uh, you know do these things right, do them in the, do, do them in ways that made sense, and do them efficiently and cheaply, and they did that. Um, it worked really well. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know, so I think kind of the, the first requirement for having, you know, I mean, socialism, it's because I feel like it's sort of becoming like progressive. It's sort of hard to tell what you, what you actually mean by that. But I would say in, in terms of when you're talking about this, these sort of like big time federal projects, really a requirement for them to, to function well is to have, you know, a series, you know, a, a, a series of stakeholders, widely dispersed uh, right. people who are committed to the project and making sure it works well. And, and um, yeah. you know, also kind of lo- looking over the shoulders of the people and make sure they're, they're doing a, right. you know, a good job. Um, and if you just have, you know, people who, are, who want their, uh, you just want some, some water subsidies, uh, for pork barrel politics, it's not going to be a very good result. But if you have, you know, an, an ideological movement that's committed to the idea of that public provision as an important part, you know, an inescapable part of a modern economy, and it's very important that it be done right, mm-hmm. that's how you can, I think, develop the like the spirit of core and the, you know, the commitment um, yeah. in these government agencies to to do good work. That you know, uh, modern you know your your classic neoclassical economic theory predicts is completely impossible. You know, it's like governments should always fail all the time. Mm. Like, well, that's definitely not true. Right. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But right. but when when it's not, I think is when you have people who who have a kind of personal ideological commitment to you know being morally correct in their deployment of public resources and. Uh, and the idea of public resources are a thing that you can have. And so, yeah, you know, well, the, the whether you want to call it, you know, democratic socialism or economic democracy, liberalism or whatever. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of, that's the precondition, I think. Yeah. 
that you have checks on it, and we we have real real democracy is a big big part of it, I think, and it, it's essential. Otherwise, if you if you have the socialism aspect without the democratic aspect, that's a problem. If you have uh, just uh, you know pure uh, democracy without some degree of going for the public good, the common good, as our founders clearly intended, that's a mess too. And I, I just wanted to ask about, you know, the, there's a lot of droughts going on these days and, you know, due to the effects of, of climate change. I can't help but think uh, there's a lot of a lot of effects of the droughts. Uh, I wonder if how inevitable it might be that uh, even Republican uh, Western politicians might come around to supporting new socialist public works programs and management of land and water for the common good. Do you, do you see this? Is it, there's a starting to be pressure from the public to uh, make that happen, or isn't the drought uh, hard uh, enough yet? Well, yeah, the drought is, is and has been real bad for the past 15 years across most, particularly the Southwest. Um and I and it's definitely having an effect on the politics of the region. And I, I think it's not so much like the development of new public work because there's already a ton of public work there. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It's more in in people, you know, as I was saying, like as from the from the '60s and '70s, there are all these really ridiculous projects built, and mm-hmm. you know, even the ones that were pretty good. Oh, the legal context is often extremely fraught. You know, there's mm. this, this treaty between the Colorado Basin states that was based, you know, the, the allocation of water was based off a way overestimate of how much is in there. And so, you know, all the, all the problems, basically, of the original water development in particular are sort of coming, bearing fruit. Mm. And uh, the states are being forced to reconcile this giant hodgepodge into something that's a little bit more sensible. And it's, and it's a, a real pain in the neck. Yeah. You know, if there, there's some water journalists I follow, a guy named John Fleck who's pretty good. And it's, man, it is hard to understand just what's going on with the legal context and the bureaucratic decisions and the, you know, so on and so forth. But, you know, Places like Albuquerque, Santa Fe, right, tough stuff. Um, they they've cut their per capita water consumption by like half or more. Wow. You know, in in terms of that, they've just slowly been reconfiguring their the entire Western water system on a more uh, sensible, uh, re, yeah, sensible, realistic, workable <laughs> basis. What a concept! And, you know. For for sure, for the, because there's no other option basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's more about rearranging existing assets, I think, than it is about building new ones. I mean, there's a little bit of that, but yeah, yeah it is pretty interesting to see because man, there's some just you know some some political fighting going on and like cats in a sack. You know, people just going about water. <laughs> you, know, you got the, the up the front range versus the western slope in Colorado and Colorado versus California and Arizona versus Colorado and they're all just wailing on each other all the time but you know at a, at a certain certain point you just have to kind of come together and figure it out otherwise you know and get co- the water, amount of water is not going to change 
and get coordinated, have some degree of democratic socialism. We have come to the end of the hour. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, people can read uh, your stuff often. Ryan Cooper in theweek.com. Thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks for having me. I've got my saddle. Got my horse. He's cold. Of course. I want to be a cowboy. I want to be a cowboy.